Uh, moms and daughters, maybe hug it out before we get too much farther into this message. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Scott Rains. I'm one of the pastors here at Hope. Really, really excited to be kicking off this new message series called Faith on Film. And the film we're going to be looking at today is a film called Lady Bird. And just to let you know, Lady Bird's okay. She broke her wrist, has a pink cast for the first couple of months of her senior year. Other than that, she's just fine. Uh, the film is written and directed by a woman named Greta Gerwig. She's nominated for an Academy Award for both of those categories. And in the movie, the plot is centered on this sometimes beautiful, most of the time volatile relationship between this mother and this daughter. Uh, Saoirse Ronan plays uh, Lady Bird, and Laurie Metcalf plays her mom, and they both get nominated for their acting jobs uh, this year. It is not a family-friendly film, uh, but it's a film that's very real and very honest about the joys and challenges and pain and struggles of life. Uh, before we get too far in the message, just, just want to say a little bit about the message series. For the next five weeks, we're going to be taking a look at a different movie each week and making connections between uh, the stories of those films and faith in God and how to live a life of faith and who is God and that sort of thing. And, and sometimes people will say, well, I thought that's what the Bible was for. I mean, that's why we open the pages of this book. The, the Bible teaches us about God, and the Bible helps connect our lives to living a life of faith. And of course that is true. And it's especially true and helpful for people who believe the Bible and find the Bible trustworthy. I don't know if you've been noticing this or not. There are fewer and fewer of those people in our world all the time. Uh, the Barna Research Group, they've been studying Christianity in America for several decades now. Last year, one of the studies they did, they look at cities in America to determine which cities are the most Bible-minded cities in America. Their definition of Bible-minded would be people who read the Bible weekly and strongly assert the Bible is accurate in the principles it teaches. Someone who's Bible-minded goes to Bible, the Bible on a regular basis, uses the Bible as a guide, as a source of wisdom, as they're relating to one another, as they're living their life. And so then they surveyed uh, these cities, these metropolitan areas, to determine which of the cities are the most Bible-minded. As you might imagine, the Bible Belt was high up on the list. Chattanooga, Tennessee, the most Bible-minded city last year. 50% of the people uh, the Barna Group surveyed in Chattanooga said this was them. They fall into that category. Coming in at number 65 on the list was the Des Moines, Ames, Iowa metro area, kind of the I-35 uh, I corridor here in central Iowa. Now, think for a second about where Lutheran Church of Hope has campuses, has locations. Ames, Des Moines, Waukee, Johnston Grimes, West Des Moines, 77% of the people in those locations are not very Bible-minded. I'm sure it's very different if they surveyed Ankeny or the people who worship online, right? <laughs> I kid, I kid. Here's the point. The mission of hope is to reach out to the world around us, share the everlasting love of Jesus Christ. If the starting place for us as we are reaching out is, well, the Bible says, the Bible says, yeah, but the Bible says... People are tuning us out before we even get the opportunity to talk to them about Jesus and God's love. And so in a changing cultural environment, part of what that means is we need to be paying attention to how are we doing this? How are we living this life? What's our strategy? How are we reaching out? And is it effective? 
And so we want to follow the example of someone who's really good at this, and that's Jesus. And it turns out Jesus hardly ever starts with Scripture as he's reaching out. Occasionally he will. You have heard it said, but I'm going to tell you something new, something different, something better. Most of the time, most of the time, Jesus begins his reaching out ministry efforts by telling a story. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to Matthew chapter 13. Uh, We are going to be looking at films the next five weeks. We also will be looking at Scripture. Uh, You can't build a bridge from a film to Scripture unless you actually know Scripture. So Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells one story after another. They're called parables. Uh, A parable is a didactic story, a story that's used for the sake of teaching something, making some kind of uh, moral point. So we see the parable of the farmer scattering the seed and the parable of the wheat and the weeds and the mustard seed and the yeast and it goes on and on and on. All of these stories that Jesus tells. Now, there are a couple places in Matthew 13 where Jesus points back to Old Testament scripture. But primarily what he is doing as he's teaching the people is telling stories, telling parables. And apparently people in Jesus' day wondered, why is he doing this? Why doesn't he just stick to scripture? Isn't scripture good enough? And so Matthew kind of answers that for us right away in verse 34. Wherever you're worshiping right now, let's read this verse out loud together. Matthew 13, verse 34. It's on the screen. Read it out loud with me. Jesus always used stories and illustrations like these when speaking to the crowds. In fact, he never spoke to them without using such parables. Jesus was always looking for ways to build bridges to help connect God's love, what God is up to in this world, who God is, how do we connect that to the reality of people's life in his day? And we're encouraged to do the same thing. How do we build those kinds of bridges? Some of the best storytellers in our world today live in Hollywood. I love movies. My best friend Dan and I, every time we get together, we try to watch movies for the last, I think, five years now. Uh, When the Oscar nominations come out, we get together in late January, sometimes in February, and we try to watch every movie nominated for Best Picture before the actual Academy Award show. And so this year, of all the movies nominated for Best Picture, my favorite was this movie, Lady Bird. The scene we watched at the beginning of the message, part of the opening scene of that movie, and then right after that, it goes through kind of this montage of scenes from Lady Bird at school. Uh, She's uh, in a classroom being taught. She's in an assembly where they're voting for, you know, student body president, that sort of thing. There are scenes of her at mass in worship in the chapel because she goes to a private Catholic school. Scripture is read. Prayers are prayed. And then a priest offers a homily, a short sermon. Short sermons, that's so silly. (laughs) Here's part of what the priest says. We're afraid that we'll never escape our past, and we're afraid of what the future will bring. We're afraid that we will not get into the college of our choice. We're afraid we won't be loved, we won't be liked, we won't succeed. What fears are you facing today? What kept you up at night last night? What what did you wake up thinking about, worried about, concerned about? 
What fears are you facing? I, I wanna read through this list again, not because maybe it's something on the list for you, but just to give you a little more time to pay attention what's going on in your heart and your mind as I read through this. Maybe there's something God wants you to pay attention to. We're afraid that we'll never escape our past and we're afraid of what the future will bring. Think about what a scary existence it is if you're afraid of both your past and your future. We're afraid that we will not get into the college of our choice. We're afraid we won't be loved. We won't be liked. We won't succeed. These words from a Catholic priest to a bunch of high school students at the beginning of this movie kind of set the stage for what the movie is really all about. There's this undercurrent of fear throughout the entire movie and particularly fear in the relationships. And part of what the movie is trying to show us is the destructive nature that fear can have in terms of our relationships. There's all kinds of scenes that show this. Lady Bird is fearful that she's gonna be stuck in California for the rest of her life. She's afraid that she's missing out on something. There's something more, something bigger, something better, and she's missing out on it. She's afraid that she's insignificant, that she doesn't matter. Part of the reason she changes her name from Christine to Ladybird, she thinks somehow that will make her life matter more. Her mother is afraid Ladybird's gonna fly away and never come home. There's fears about finances, especially when Ladybird's father loses his job. Uh, part of the reason she's going to a private Catholic school, there's fears about safety at school. So I wanna show you a couple of scenes. Uh, as you watch these scenes, what I want you to be paying attention to, the ways in which fear is having negative uh, effects on relationships. The, the first scene, uh, Lady Bird has gone to a dance at school. It's prom weekend for a lot of high schools here. She had a great time at the dance, uh, kissed a boy for the first time, really excited about that. And she gets home to find out her father has lost his job and things kind of go from there. The second scene, she gets in trouble at school and when she comes home and her parents find out what she has done, there's all kinds of fear around that. So we're afraid we won't be able to escape our past. We're afraid of what the future might bring. Afraid we won't get into the college of our choice. Afraid we won't be loved, won't be liked, won't succeed. Scripture passage for today comes from 1 John chapter 4, part of what John is writing about is the love of God. At one point, he answers the question, who is God, with a simple statement, God is love. God is love, and then he makes sort of this concise summary of Christmas to Easter in verses 9 and 10. God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. What makes John so certain that God is love? He looks at Jesus. If, if you're part of the 77% of people in central Iowa who are not Bible-minded, can I just say, I get it. I mean, there's a lot in this Bible that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's a lot in here that's boring. There's a lot of things that you read through and you just go, why is that even in there? Why should I care? Why does this matter? And sometimes our temptation can be to just set this aside. I'm just not gonna engage with this book anymore. I would offer a different suggestion. What if you started to focus in on the parts of the Bible that help us see Jesus? that help us get to know Jesus. There's four books at the beginning of the New Testament in the Bible. We call them the Gospels. 
fancy word for good news. It tells the story, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John, the same guy who's writing this letter, 1 John. John, who is one of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's there at the cross on Good Friday. He's there at the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. Uh, John is an eyewitness of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's been following Jesus for three years as a close friend. He's been listening to what Jesus has to say, watching what Jesus has to do, and John becomes convinced Jesus is God. Because of his relationship with Jesus, he's able to write, God is love. What if the starting place for you isn't Genesis? What if the starting place for you is Jesus? What do you think when you look at his teaching, when you see how he acts and how he loves, when you see the power with which he challenges the status quo in his day? Maybe if you start with Jesus, you might have a similar experience to John. You might start to think maybe this guy really is the son of God. Maybe he really can save me, rescue me, forgive me, deliver me, lead me into a new kind of life. Back to 1 John uh, chapter 4, John encourages us to follow Jesus, uh, to put our faith in Jesus, to learn to love the way Jesus loves. And if we can do that, as we do that, John writes that God begins to live in us and love gets perfected in us. I've been married for 20 years. I have six kids. I'm a pastor of a church. My love is far from perfect. This verse feels like really good news to me, that part of what God is up to in my life, God's showing me a new way, a better way. Here is the path to a life where your love is being perfected, where you actually start to love the people in your life the way that you want to love them. Haven't arrived, long way to go, but day by day, following after Jesus, what starts to happen is God perfects our love. And then in the next verse, verse 18, John writes, here's why it's so important that love gets perfected in us. Perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment, and this shows we have not fully experienced his love, God's love. Perfect love expels all fear. If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. I think another reason 77% of us in central Iowa would say we're not necessarily Bible-minded is this fear of punishment. I mean, I'm a pastor, I get to have real holy moments, conversations with people uh, in my office, telling me, sharing me what's going on in their life. Here are some of the conversations that do not happen very often, where someone comes in and says, Pastor Scott, I just wanted you to know, man, marriage is going great for me, this is awesome, things are just going so smoothly, and we love it, and we're still in love, and I I just thought you would want to know. I don't have a whole lot of appointments where moms and dads come in and say, this parenting thing, man, it's so much easier than we ever thought it would be. It just makes complete sense to me. Do you have any parenting classes you need someone to lead? Because we are experts. We can do this thing for you. Somebody comes into my office and says, Pastor Scott, my job, it just fills me with so much meaning and purpose and significance. I just, I know I'm doing Monday to Friday, 40, 50, 60 hours a week, exactly what God put me on this earth to do. I don't even have to set an alarm on Sunday night. I, I'm so excited to get to work on Monday morning, I don't even sleep anyway. <laughs> I don't get those kinds of conversations. Pastor Dave probably does, but I don't. Instead, instead, I get the real honor, the real privilege of sitting across the table as people share with me failures 
and mess-ups and, and the ways in which life just isn't going the way they had hoped or thought or planned or dreamed it might go. And often, often when things aren't going the way that we want them to be going, often our temptation or the conclusion that we draw is, I wonder if maybe God is punishing me for some sin in my past, for some mistake that I've made. I mean, after all, isn't that how the Bible begins? Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit and they get punished. And you keep reading and Moses is leading the the people of Israel out of slavery and they're getting the Ten Commandments and here's how to live together as God's people. And it's just this whole list of thou shalt nots and if you do what you're not supposed to do, here's the punishment. And I think most people are self-aware enough to know they're far from perfect. They mess up all the time. And if, if the natural consequence What happens after we mess up is punishment is coming. I don't want to read the Bible to be reminded of that time and time again. And so we just set the Bible aside. But what if, what if John's on to something? What if John's right? Perfect love expels all fear. What if he's right? If we're afraid, it's for fear of punishment. What if that actually means our fear is indicating to us We need to read more of the Bible, not less of the Bible. We haven't quite experienced the fullness of God's love for us. Exodus chapter 32, Moses is on the mountain getting the commandments. The people are down at the bottom of the mountain apparently getting bored. And so they build this golden calf and they start to worship it as the God who has rescued them from Egypt. This does not please God. God and Moses have some conversations about this. What are we going to do? And you would think it's going to lead to some some grand punishment, but that's not where it goes. It leads to a place where God promises Moses, I'm going to be with you. As you lead the people, I'm going to go with you to the promised land. And Moses is like, good, if you're not coming with us, I don't even really want to go. And then in the next chapter, chapter 33, Moses makes this kind of bold request to God. Show me your glorious presence, Moses asks. When you think about the glory of God, what kind of things pop into your mind? What images pop into your mind? I think for most of us, the glory of God is this big and awesome and grand and marvelous. It's like this awesome displays of power and might. That's the glory of God. So it's interesting to me how God responds to Moses' request. Show me your glorious presence. And God says, okay, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Show me your glorious presence. I will make all my goodness pass before you. If you don't remember anything else from this message, I hope you remember this. The most glorious thing about God is that God is infinitely good. The most glorious thing about God is that God is infinitely good. And reflecting on the goodness of God to Moses and to the people of Israel, four or 500 years later, King David writes Psalm 103. Here's part of what King David writes. God revealed his character to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all our sins. What? Jesus picks up on this idea. 
John chapter 3, the most well-known saying of Jesus, God loved the world so much he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Next verse, Jesus says, I did not come to judge the world, to condemn the world, but to save the world. Perfect love expels all fear because as love gets perfected in us, we start to see, we start to understand, we start to know in a way that is transformational that God's focus is not punishing the world for our sin. God's focus is saving the world with compassion and mercy that's new every morning, with love that's never-ending and unfailing, with grace that is so amazing. God wants to save you. God wants to love you. And this is surprising to a lot of people. It's surprising to Lady Bird. At one point in the film, she's trying to win the approval of a group of girls in her school. And to do that, she thinks, I gotta make fun of the nuns. And then she decides, I'm gonna play this prank on some of the nuns. And, and she goes out to their car. And you remember how, I don't know if they still do this anymore, they used to decorate the car of brides and grooms at, at their wedding and they'd put streamers and tin cans on it and a sign that says, just married. And so she does this to the nun's car, but because they're nuns, she writes, just married to Jesus. And I know. And then she gets called into the nun's office where she's expecting punishment, but she's in for a surprise. Ladybird wasn't planning on going to church that Sunday. She hears the church bells ringing. She goes in and she has an encounter with grace. I wonder as that choir was singing if maybe the conversation with that nun started replaying in the back of her mind. I'm not going to punish you. I want to teach you something about love. And maybe she started to believe maybe that's who God really is. That when I mess up and when I fail, God's not all excited because now God gets to punish me. God wants to extend mercy and grace and compassion and pick me up and say, let's try it again. Let's go this way. As she's beginning to experience the reality and the power of God's love in her life, it's changing her. She walks out of the church and she calls her mom. And did you notice she calls herself Christine? It's the name you gave me and, and it's a good one. It's freeing her up as she experiences God's love. It's freeing her up to be herself. And it's freeing her up to love the people in her life the way that she wants to. Got a long road ahead of her. It's not perfect yet, but it's moving in the right direction. She starts to realize she doesn't have to live her life as a slave to fear, a slave to her past, a slave to the fear of what the future might bring. She starts to recognize who she really is. She is a child of God. Let's stand and let's sing about that good news together.